This week on Hanging with Champions, we'll hang with one of this Summer Olympics' most recognizable names, but this legend is so much more than that. She's an author, she's a business owner, and a broadcaster. A 10-time world champion, three-time Olympian, and with 12 Olympic medals, she's tied as the most decorated U.S. female Olympian in history. The golden girl of swimming, Natalie Coughlin, joins us. So come on, hang with us on Hanging with Champions. Well, welcome to another episode of Hanging with Champions. I am Patrick Keenis. Thrilled to have a special guest today, Natalie Coughlin. We'll bring her in in just a moment. A reminder, you can find Hanging with Champions really all over your favorite podcast platforms at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and soon to be picked up on Pandora. And you can also tweet at us at Hang with Champs. Find us on Instagram to Facebook at Hanging with Champions. So without any further ado, let's bring in uh, the, the golden girl of swimming, Natalie Coughlin. Hi, Natalie. How are you, buddy? Hi, I'm well. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful <laughs> to have you here. So, so full disclosure here, the day this podcast drops should be the day that you and I are going to be working side by side in Tokyo. It would have been day one of the Olympics, four gold medal races in Tokyo and swimming. Sadly, I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You're out in California. We'd rather be in Tokyo, but uh, hopefully just a one-year delay on the, you and I working together for Westwood One. Yeah, hopefully. I know it's crazy when you said that. When you said that, I hardly remember that it's July, you know, let alone the Olympics we're supposed to be going on right yeah. now. Um, you know, I saw, I saw a meme at some point that was like, I can't tell if it's been four months, four years, four minutes, it's all the right. same, you know? <laughs> I mean, it took me back on Tuesday. It took me probably 10 minutes of walking through the house to convince myself that it actually was Tuesday. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I haven't worked since the middle of March as far as uh, any kind of broadcast assignments. How have you been spending your time with all of the various kind of business and family endeavors you're involved with? It's, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. The first week of shelter in place here in California, um, was mid-March for us. And um, I, that first week was the longest week. And then I started to get into a routine. Um, but I have a 20, now 21 month old daughter. Um, I'm pregnant. I don't know if I told you that. Um, so I'm now uh, six, seven months pregnant. Um, so that on top of running around after a toddler and then trying to manage all my businesses <laughs> while it, it's, imp it's impossible. It really is. Um, my husband is super busy and my daughter's very, very active and, um, it's, it's challenging. Uh, but we've fallen into a routine and I'm trying to get all my work done as much as possible when she's napping and <laughs> when right. um, my husband is home. But yeah, this is, this is a crazy time. I, I, and I'm, I'm just grateful that she's young and not, I don't have to worry about the school issues and things like that. But, okay. um, but yeah, taking care of a toddler nonstop for the past, however many weeks, <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> so, so for all of our fans out there listening and for all of your masses and legions of fans out there, can you just bring them up to speed on what all you are involved in uh, yes. beyond, beyond your connection with swimming? Well, you and I were supposed to do um, the Tokyo Olympics for Westwood One, and I was so excited to do that. And um, yeah. and uh, I love—I mean, I love Japan. I love the Olympics, and it would have been really fun to to officially work at the Olympics this time. Um, 
but that being said, I have a wine, uh, a winery out in St. Helena called Gadarian. Um, Gadarian is the old English word uh, for to gather or to bring together. And it's just me and my business partner, who's also the winemaker, Shana Harding. Um, so we work on that. We have now um, Shannon Blanc and Pinot Noir are two flagship wines, but we've added a Petite Syrah, a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Rosé of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Um, so we have a full uh, portfolio and with the shelter in place, I, um, I manage the direct-to-consumer relations and the you know social media sites and um, my partner does the day-to-day -day operation at the winery um, itself because because I'm pregnant, I haven't been able to get up there uh, since this all started. But that hasn't stopped you before because you and I talked in Stanford many, many months ago that yes. uh, even leading up to your, your first daughter, Zenny's birth, you were out there at the vineyard, basically walking down the rows, right? Checking to see on, Correct. Uh, when, when on the, the bricks. Yeah, on, the, on the bricks, yes. You educated yes. me a lot on, on wine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, generally during the summer, um, I will go out to the vineyards and check the bricks, which is the sugar levels. And so that's when you know when to pick the wine. Um, when the sugar levels hit a certain amount, um, it's a very mathematical equation that if the bricks are at this level, the alcohol will be at this level. And, and it's pretty, pretty good way to tell um, when harvest is. And it's really a moving target. Um, and uh, yeah, when my daughter was born, I was 38 weeks pregnant, I think, when I worked the harvest for our Shannon. <laughs> and, you know, I was shoveling out uh, the bins, you know, once, once you get the, um, the bins uh, full of the must after they're pressed, you have to dig them out. And so I was doing that uh, with this giant belly that was in the way. And um, <laughs> it was great. But, but now with, um, with the whole quarantine, there's an extra level of not only physically that's demanding, but also mm -hmm. um, I'm social distancing uh, extremely. Right, <laughs> like I haven't, I haven't seen anybody. Um, <laughs> like, and, and, and for someone who is naturally an introvert, um, I'm really built for this, but even I am, hit, I've hit my wall of not seeing people. <laughs> so if I, if I asked you the question of which was more challenging, your swimming training for your time at Cal as an amateur or for the Olympics, or walking through the fields, checking on the status of the bricks <laughs> at 38 weeks pregnant, which was more commanding, uh, um, which was more challenging for you? hands down the training um the the winery all that stuff is such a dream um even the hard physical work of it it is such a dream that i never thought i would actually do um you know my partner approached me in 2017 to ask me to partner up with her on this label and um i said yes immediately not even knowing what that meant and um, I've been such a fan of wine, uh, having grown up here in the Bay Area, right outside uh, Napa Valley. Um, and so it, just to be involved in it and have a product that I have physically put some work into and have created alongside one of my good friends is, is pretty amazing. Now, you and I have spoken many times about this. And you, know, you, you have a, a deep love of food and of healthy foods and you've been involved in that you you're an author of a cookbook and you brought me a copy of that almost immediately after it came out about a year and a half ago and i want to talk a little bit about that and so many topics to cover but one story i read last night 
but I, I had to get more details on. So when you were a student at Cal, you started a garden on the fire escape of your dorm. And is that true? And what inspired true. that? Um, so my first, so my first apartment, it wasn't in the dorm, okay. but, um, my first apartment, my sophomore year, I had, um, these potted plants, uh, that I kept on the fire escape, which I don't think is very safe because <laughs> I think you're supposed to use the fire escape to escape fire, but that was the only outdoor <laughs> space I had. Um, so I had peppers and herbs and, um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to control, uh, that aspect of my cooking. Um, and especially as a college student on a budget, herbs are very expensive. Sure. And if you're going to buy that little bundle of basil, you better well use all of it because it's so expensive. And so I thought I'd cut out the middleman and just grow my own. Um, and my grandparents, um, you know, they had a garden and I had a nanny as a kid who had a garden. So I was exposed to that when I was younger. And I wanted to kind of go, go back to that. And one of my biggest heroes in life is Alice Waters, um, who is the owner uh, of Chez Panisse. And she's the one who started uh, the edible schoolyard out in Berkeley, California. So um, all, all public schools in Berkeley, California have a fully working garden that is incorporated into the education. Um, so science and humanities, and it's really cool. So she was like my inspiration that I wanted to start with a, a little herb garden. And then when I moved to Emeryville, I had um, my senior year of college, um, I moved to Emeryville and I had a bigger patio. So I expanded to citrus trees and tomatoes and, and more peppers. And then now here in Lafayette, um, still in the Bay area, I have chickens, I have all sorts of fruit trees, I have massive vegetable garden, and um, getting back to the whole shelter in place, it's been really nice because I have so much fresh produce in my backyard, so that helps us avoid the grocery store as much as possible. And is this, is this a, it's kind of a grocery store in your backyard only for you, or do, do are you finding your neighbors are a lot more friendly to you because they're they're short on tomatoes or potatoes or whatever the coglins are growing? <laughs> I I have I have been sharing quite a bit. Like we got so many plums this year. Like I think we've had over a hundred pounds of plums, um, and they're still uh, fruit. There's still fruit on the tree. So I've made more jam than I know what to do with, and more pickle plums than I know what to do with, and I've given pounds and pounds away to either my in-laws or my parents. Um, but it's, it, that's kind of the beauty of gardening is you know where your food comes from. It tastes really, really good. And you get to share the bounty with uh, the people that matter to you. Yeah. Before we get back into your, into your present day swimming, your, your incredibly uh, legendary past career in swimming, I want to talk about a, f a few more things. You've just kind of joined allegiances with Leonel, uh, Jacob Pebley, and, and I think a couple of more dozen uh, American swimmers on the swimmers for change. Can you talk about your involvement and, and what Swimmers for Change is about? Yeah, so when um, the George Floyd uh, murder happened um, and the Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter movement really, really gained a lot of momentum, um, Leah Neal and Jacob Hebley, two former teammates of mine, uh, Leah was an Olympic teammate of mine and Jacob was um, at Cal when I was at Cal. Um, so I know them both very, very well. They just felt like they wanted to use their platform and use it for good. 
And so they came up with the idea, uh, Summers for Change, very quickly and just contacted the people that they thought um, would support the movement. And um, I was one of them. And Leah texted me and she was like, hey, I, I want to do this. Uh, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. It's going to be a series of webinars and you could um, support any charity within the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement that you want to support and so I chose Raised Roots which is um, a cooperative farming company in um, the Bay Area that provides CSA boxes for underprivileged areas they were providing um, lunch boxes and, and food to the protesters like they they have like some really really cool programs so that's who I chose and so I did a webinar just on one of my favorite recipes. And uh, um, there were two weeks of webinars that were free. And everyone that participated, you had the opportunity to, to donate. And um, yeah, and it was great. Me and uh, Gary Hall Jr. and Kim Vandenberg were the season finale <laughs> of, um, <laughs> of Summers for Change. But yeah, it was two weeks. We raised a lot of money for a lot of great charities. And I know um, Leah and Jacob are both very, very proud of what they've done. And, um, it's not over, you know, that was just a start and they're looking forward to, um, seeing what they could do next. It's, it's a great cause. And, and as if that didn't keep you busy enough with your <laughs> vineyard and with your backyard grocery store and with swimmers for change, you're also on the uh, USA swimming advisory board and have responsibilities Correct. as far as that goes. What does that entail? Yeah, so I've been on the board of directors since 2016, um, and I'm also the athlete advisory council rep for the U.S. OPC. Um, so I have a lot of volunteer positions that take a lot of time. <laughs> I think when I signed up for them, I had no idea how much time they take. Um, but um, it, it, the, the biggest one is the the board of directors for USA Summing, and that um, entails our quarterly meetings and, um, you know, with what is going on with the world with the Olympics being postponed mm -hmm. and um, you know, trials being postponed. There, there were a lot of meetings, a lot of Zoom calls trying to figure out how to navigate this, how to keep our athletes safe, how to keep USA Swimming afloat, you know, pardon the pun, but um, how, to, how to operate in this new world. Um, and it's, it's a huge responsibility, but I feel like I have benefited so much from USA Swimming and being a swimmer. And um, this is just a very small way that I could give back to the organization that has given me so much. So as we transition now a little bit more to swimming, we're sitting here with Natalie Coughlin out in uh, the San Francisco area. While you're not dealing with the pandemic uh, in, the, in the prime of your athletic career, many, many of your peers and people who have looked up to you for years are. So as an advisor, as uh, an elite swimmer, uh, one of the greatest swimmers uh, ever to compete, because we, as we know, sw swimming is a sport where you are trained to peak at certain moments during a calendar year. Mm -hmm. Now they need to readjust that. They're now changing it to try and peak 12 months later than what the original plan was. So what are some of the recommend recommendations you have? And what are some of the bigger questions that they're asking you on how to be at optimal uh, ability next July? It's, I mean, that's such a great question and something that so many athletes, not just swimmers are trying to figure out. I think um, the biggest thing, especially as you get older is you start to get these nagging injuries um, and you train through them and you push through them um, and you know, you keep your eye on the prize. And so uh, 
a lot of us have seen this as an opportunity to at least like sit back and heal um, like our bodies physically. Uh, so if you do have shoulder, knee, back issues, um, this could be a chance for you to address that. Um, and so kind of looking at the silver lining on this very dark cloud um, and just focus on what you could focus on. It's, it's really easy to spin out. And trust me, there are days where I'm super overwhelmed and the hormones are going a little crazy and I, I get uh, like just upset and, you know, we, we don't know when this is going to end. Like, right. so every, everyone's in that place. Um, and the people who say they're not, I don't really believe, <laughs> but, you know, like we have, you have to be at some point, like sure. it's, it's good to be optimistic, but it's also good to be honest. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I've had really good days and I've had really bad days. I mean, it's about 130 days in, uh, I haven't worked since the ACC men's basketball tournament in the middle of March, the next day the world stopped and myself, other colleagues have been laid off, furloughed. Uh, a lot of the people on the TV production side are, are without work. And I think that's the toughest part about it, Natalie, is you just don't know. There's no finish line, right? There's no, right. There's no wall for you to reach because it's, it's all just nebulous. It could end in six months, it, depending on how the country handles its approach and how the, how the people handle what responsibilities they have. It could be 18 more months. We just don't know. And I think that's the most challenging mental piece of this whole ordeal. Right. And, and athletes, especially swimmers, like we're like with the nerdiest of the athletes, like we plan, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we, we, we have our lives planned out, uh, mm -hmm. like in quadrenniums, you know, uh, every four years, uh, like even my, my old coach, Dave Durden in his office, one of the walls is four calendar years um, with every single day and it is filled like at any given time and um, we like to know what's going to happen and I've lived my life that way forever and so to step back into this where you're like I don't know if it's Tuesday or Wednesday or Sunday like if mm -hmm. it wasn't for my prenatals I would have no idea honestly because <laughs> every day is Groundhog's Day it's the exact same I wake up take care of my daughter we go to the park if that's available um, we run and play in the front yard. Um, you know, we do what we have to do, but, uh, it's, it, it, and, you know, to, to get back to what we were saying earlier, there have been some really lovely days. You know, I've gotten to spend such quality time with her. And then in the beginning of this, when my husband wasn't working, like us as a family, we got to spend some really sure. nice time together, sure. but all that being said, it's exhausting and we need breaks and we just haven't had any. <laughs> Well, I, I certainly hope that in a year's time, you and I are sitting side by side in Tokyo. That said, because everything is unknown, there is a chance, we don't know how great of a chance, how small of a chance, that the Tokyo Olympics, despite all the planning, all the venues, all the sales, all the sponsorship, all the TV deals, may not happen. Mm -hmm. So as an athlete, you were so fortunate to, to be in part of, take place in three different Olympic Games. There are many athletes around the world who Tokyo was going to be their only chance. Right. How devastating would it be, not only for the games, but for those athletes, if there is no Tokyo next summer? Pretty devastating, like very, very devastating. Um, and, you know, swimming, you, you have athletes such as myself that have been to multiple Olympics, but you look at other sports where they, they really get one shot, one and done. Um, you know, like I think of, 
gymnastics. Um, you know, there are a lot of gymnasts who, you know, there's that moving target and you're, you're, you're going towards 2020 and it, that's a sport that is so difficult on your body. So hard. You're, you're ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. It gets yanked away. And that entire training cycle and everything is just completely out of whack. Like mentally, this is really hard on a lot, a lot of athletes, but there's, there's also that physical toll. Um, and I think there are very different, um, very big differences sport to sport. Swimming, fortunately, or unfortunately, we kind of go nonstop, <laughs> like throughout the year. Um, so granted, you do want to ramp up for the Olympic year, you're still part you're still um, ramping up for world championships in between Olympics. And so it's not like we have the same uh, cycles that other sports do. Now, for those fans who may not know your portfolio, as far as uh, international medals, Olympic medals, uh, I'll, I'll inflate your ego a little bit here because I know uh, this, Please you, don't do. like, you, you don't like <laughs> to talk about this a whole lot, but in 2004 in Athens, your first Olympic games, I believe you were 20 years old then, uh, five medals. I turned 22 at the, um, a, like a couple of days after oh. I competed. So See, it's a mo- lovely birthday. Most people scale back their age. You're, you're advancing your <laughs> age there. So, but you won the 100 meter, 100 meter backstroke there, uh, part of your five medal hall. In 08, you won six medals, the first female U.S. Olympian to do that in swimming. And you grabbed a, a relay bronze in 2012 in London. So 12 total, tied with mm-hmm. uh, Jenny Thompson and Dara Torres as the all-time most decorated female U.S. Olympians in the, in the summer games. When when you you probably don't take a whole lot of time to sit back and reflect much about it because you have so many other things going on now. But when you when you hear those numbers, when you remember some of those races and all the training since you were five years old, jumping in the pool for the first time, what what are some of the first thoughts that come across your mind? Um, a little bit of like surprise of um, like I was kind of. I don't know if naive is the right word, but going into each and every one of those races, I expected myself to medal. Um, like I wanted to win gold and, um, I definitely wanted to at least be on the podium. Um, and you know, whether it was the 103 or hundred back or 200 IM, um, I, I, I thought I was capable of, of winning. Um, and so, you know, I kind of, away at that, that medal count, you know, one at a time. And it wasn't until I think my, I think it was the bronze in the hundred free in Beijing, where I think Terry McKeever, my coach was mm-hmm. like, you can get six medals at this games. And no one has ever done that. No female has ever done that. And I was like, Oh, that'd be great. Like I, I, that wasn't a goal of mine. I just, but I, but yet I expected myself to be on the podium after every single race, because I knew I was capable of that. Um, so it, and you yeah. were though, right? I mean, in, yep. in, in all of the Olympic finals you, in which you raced, you were on the podium, correct? right? 11 um, for 11. And then you were, you're part of the, the morning relay in London correct. in 2012, but yep. every single race in which you were entered, you were on the Olympic podium. That's, that's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm really proud of that, but yeah, you look back and you're like, yeah, it's kind of naive, kind of cocky, kind of a lot of things, but that's also, I think what made me good was, um, that confidence and, uh, that belief that, yeah, why not? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, so we, we, we had Apollo Ono on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about what, what, what's the fuel that makes him great? Because I think the fuel that the octane levels of, of gas going into these vehicles, your bodies, is different. Yeah, I think you're all driv- mm-hmm. driven by something, but it's not the same. So, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, it's a fear of failure. For some people, it's trying to mm-hmm. um, overcome bullying or a lot of uh, people just not believing in them. What, what was it for Natalie Coughlin? For a very long time, I think fear of failure was a big one. Um, like that, knowing that I'm capable of doing something and then just kind of worried that it might not turn out, you know, and then having that fire and kind of anger inside of you that was like fueled by that. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult to describe. But I was just saying this the other day, for anyone who watched The Last Dance on Michael Jordan, um, I really, really related to a lot of his um, his mentality towards competing. You know, he would convince himself that someone was talking trash when they weren't. <laughs> and, you know, he was just so insanely competitive to the point where he, he may not have been very happy, but it made him very effective as an athlete. I mean, he's mm-hmm. the, the greatest, you know, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, and I, I like watching that. I'm like, yeah, I remember feeling that way. Like I remember uh, just having that fire inside of you that ne- wasn't necessarily healthy, but it was very, very effective for uh, competition. <laughs> so are you still able to apply that mentality to your business endeavors or your in a much maternal instincts <laughs> <laughs> in a much in a much healthier way where I'm much much happier um yeah like as I got older I kind of let go of that like intense like I have to win or my life is going to end kind of mentality like that's how a lot of athletes think and um I think there's a maturity that comes hopefully uh, as you get older that you're like at some point I realized like, man, I love swimming. I love training. Like I, I kind of switched my mentality that I loved the day-to-day struggle of trying to attain a goal. But at the end of the day, I'm just going up and down a pool of water, you know, like it's not that big of a deal. It's not life or death. Um, so, uh, I kind of put it into perspective and, um, I, I, you know, I, I loved it, but I kind of, I lost some of that, that intense, intensity and that fire but but that being said if I if if being competitive is a scale of one to ten I went from like a 10 plus to a 9.9 I'm still very competitive (laughs) (laughs) well I'm glad you brought up uh, Terry McKeever's name because I I spent some time last night reading uh Golden Girl the Mm. the book on which you collaborated with Michael Silver um fascinating read and I wanted to kind of bring up your relationship with Terry McKeever because, mm-hmm. you know, in, in 2004 in Athens, your first Olympic Games at now 22, 21, then 22, was also her first Olympic Games. She was the first ever female assistant coach on Team USA on the swimming side. And so you, you guys were kind of, um, kind of breaking the mold together um, and also overcoming a lot. And in 2003 in Barcelona at the, at the World Championships, you had your own uh, physical issues going on there and a ton of pressure on your shoulders. Um, Terry, from what I read from the book, simply just had a lot of things in her background uh, mm-hmm. growing up with, with uh, you know, a lot of tragedy I- impacting her life. Um, but yet there you were in Athens in 2004 
both breaking barriers and overcoming so much. Can, can you can you expand on that relationship and how much did and does Terry still mean to you now? Oh my gosh, Terry is one of you know the most important people in my life. Um, she was my coach from uh, August, late August of 2000 to uh, after the Olympics in, in 2012. So 12 years with a person is is and especially again going back to swimming with 50 weeks out of the year like that's a lot of time with any one person mm. and any one coach um but you know it was it was more than just a swimmer coach relationship like she was family and still is um and you know when i arrived at cal i came in very many ways broken i hated swimming i um, had a lot of issues with my, my old team and I had an injury and, um, and I was just, uh, resentful, you know, um, re resentful that I had come so close to making the Olympic team in 2000 and getting injured and, um, just had that chip on my shoulder that a lot of teenagers have, but especially <laughs> a teenager that just, uh, missed the Olympic team, um, narrowly. So, um, I came to Cal very broken and just over swimming and Terry helped pull me out of that. Um, and you know, I ended up swimming another 16 years, which is just absurd. Like if you told me that when I stepped foot at, at Cal that I would be swimming another 16 years, I would thought you were insane. Um, and to be honest, I could have, I could have kept going. I love swimming. I think it's, I think it's the the best. Um, I love the feeling of being in the water. I love the feel of competing. I love the feel of pushing myself and being strong. And um, there are so many great things about it. And she kind of helped me to realize those great things. And there was so much personal growth from both of you because when she overtook the Cal program in uh, the early nineties, it, it wasn't the Cal program. We certainly know today on the men's and the women's no. side. Uh, she basically built that program. But she, from, from what I read, she seemed to have a lot of personal growth. And there was a really good chance that you wound up at Stanford and not Cal, mm -hmm. uh, according, yeah. according to the story as well. So reflecting back, um, how grateful are you that she spoke up in a meeting uh, at a restaurant with you and your parents and she and her assistant coach um, that really kind of helped to cement that bond and uh, convince you that Cal was the right place to be and not at Stanford where your parents wanted you to go. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it was interesting because I, I knew I wanted to stay within California. And so I looked at Cal, UCLA, and Stanford. And um, the thought of being so close to home at Cal was not appealing to me at all. <laughs> like it's only 20 minutes from where my parents live. And I definitely wanted to fly the coop. Um, so I thought I wanted to go to UCLA. Um, and uh, I went to my recruiting trips. I met with all the coaches and all of them were wonderful. Uh, Stanford was Richard Quick at the time, uh, Cindy Gallagher at UCLA. Uh, toward the campuses. They were all great schools academically, sure. so you couldn't fail there. Um, but when you, when I met the teams, um, again, they're all lovely people, but I, you could just tell that um, you're more at home with one team than, than the other. And so I just knew that I was going to mesh well with Terry and I knew I was going to mesh well uh, with the other summers um, at Cal. And, and I was right. It was that X factor that you can't really explain to your parents. You can't articulate it as a 16 year old, but 
time, you know, I was very stubborn and my parents said I was going to go to Stanford and I said, you, you're not going to college. So if you want me to go to college and to sign a declaration of a scholarship, I'm going to Cal. And basically we had this six week standoff and, and I'm not even exaggerating. It was six weeks of, they're like, you're going to Stanford. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and, and I was like, fine, I won't go to college then. And uh, finally they gave in and um, by NC2As of my freshman year, they were just seeing how, how wonderful Terry was and uh, how good of an environment it was for me. And they apologized to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, my parents apologized to me. And then they, they said that you were right. I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, this is my life, not yours. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's so funny because that was so long ago. Like that was so long right. ago now, like over 20 years ago. And I, or 20 years ago now. Um, and I remember it so vividly. <laughs> sure, sure. Visiting with Natalie Coglin on the Hanging with Champions. Natalie, just a, a couple more questions. Uh, I, I had a chance last night to watch, full disclosure, I do not remember your 100 backs in Athens and Beijing, but I went back to watch I them. barely do. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the questions. But what was interesting too, and again, reflecting back to uh, your book with Michael Silver, Golden Girl, um, I did not know the extra backstory about Kirsty Coventry. I didn't realize that she was the one who basically ended your long winning streak in the NCAAs at Nationals mm -hmm. in the back. And then watching the 04 final in Athens, no, not many people are watching lane one outside smoke as you're kind mm -hmm. of grinding for the wall over the last 15 or 20 meters. But then all of a sudden there's a bullet in lane one outside, I'm guessing, of your uh, range of vision. And that's you can't where, see anything in yeah. backstroke, to be honest. So, and, and that's the lane in which Coventry is trying to chase you down. Um, uh, maybe a couple more meters in that race, and it's a different history for Natalie Coglin. But fortunately, it was 100 meters, and he got there first. What, what do you remember, and, um, and what, what, was, what was that one-on-one -on -one rivalry like with her? Because you met her again four um, years later. Yeah, there, there wasn't too much of a rivalry, honestly, because she was much more of a 200 backstroker and I was mm -hmm. a, more of a 100 backstroker. And yeah, going back to that streak you're talking about, um, by that point, my senior year, I was so over the 200 back and Terry's like, you're going to send the 200 back. It's like, I want to send the 100 free. And she made me send the tuner back and I ended up getting third. And I think I, <laughs> I think I, there was a part of me that did that on purpose because I hated that event so much. Um, but, um, but yeah, she, I think she got third in Athens. I can't remember. It was Laura Manadou um, from France and, and Kirsty. Um, I can't remember who was second or third. Yeah, she, Coventry um, was second by I think 1300s. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't have a great finals, honestly. That was not the best race for me because I had so much pressure on me to get that gold medal, um, that I, I didn't have a great race, but at the and end when of the you day, look at, only, all it matters. When, when you, you looked at the score, what, what, what caught me, at least with the TV replays, when they had the ISO shot on you, after you hit the wall, turn around, cap comes off, goggles come off. It was such a subdued reaction for an Olympic champion that I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure what was happening. I didn't know if you were so tired or hurt or no, unsure you know on was? what the scoreboard read. The scoreboard was very confusing in Athens, and I do remember that. Um, 
if uh, there was something about, I think you would hit the wall and then, you know, it had lanes one through eight listed and then it would recycle to have the, the fastest on top and then the second fastest on the next line. And so it was really difficult to read. <laughs> so you thought you um, finished fourth because you're in lane four? No, I, I knew I knew I had won. Um, <laughs> I, I, I knew I had won. Um, the way that I finished backstroke, you could kind of see where you are. And mm -hmm. um, even even when it is so little, 13 one hundredths, there, there is, uh, as you said, I don't remember that, but um, you actually can see that for the most part, unless you just really mess up your finish. Um, but, uh, I remember you just couldn't read the scoreboard. And so you don't want to be that person who celebrates a win <laughs> and then realizes, oh, I, I didn't actually do that. Um, so there was a little bit of that, of not being able to, um, understand the scoreboard, but then also I expected that win out of myself. I, I wasn't going to accept anything but that. Um, and so I swam a strategically stupid race, um, but uh, I, I wasn't going to allow myself to fade to the point of not winning. <laughs> uh, what was strategically stupid? What, what does that mean to the layman, to, to a, to a uh, non-swimmer like me? What, what, is it, what, is a a what, what does that mean to you? What, what, what did you not even, do right? So even though, even though the 100-meter backstroke or any 100-meter race is technically a sprint, that doesn't mean you go 100% all out from the start. You know, you kind of have to pace yourself um, and, and, and control your energy through that race. And I always had so much natural speed, um, front end speed. Right. So that first 50, I had so much easy speed that I, rather than just allow that speed to happen, I forced it to get a huge lead knowing that I could hang on despite how much pain and lactic acid was surging through, uh, my veins. Um, so I just went out, I did what you, uh, what we call a fly and die. You just go as hard as you can and just hold on for dear life. And that was stupidly strategic. Like that was my stupid strategy, but it worked out. Um, but if, if I can't remember the time, was it like one minute, like 20 or something? That was not, that was almost, almost a full second off my best time. Like that was not a good swim, right. but um, good enough for gold. Right. But it was windy <laughs> and it was outside, right? Yes, it was very windy. Um, that was the last uh, swimming event that'll ever take place outside, I'm sure of it. Um, and the flags, were, that's how we judge our walls, um, were moving like crazy. Um, there was like a dust storm. You know, Athens at that point, they didn't exactly finish the venue <laughs> in time. Um, so there was zero landscaping. And so everything was marble <laughs> and gaping. there was all this dust that was just flying everywhere you touch the bottom of the pool all this this cloud of dust and dirt would plume up um it was really really yeah. kind of crazy for the competition pool because of television they had right. to keep it really really nice and clean what was the faucet <laughs> still on when you took the deck to add a little more water to the pool before you started <laughs> <laughs> Practically, yeah. you know, we, we, we showed up, we showed up August 1st and opening ceremonies were August 13th and there was no water in the pool. 
um, the the tram system or or the train system wasn't even remotely close to finish. Like it was, they they were really coming down to the wire. <laughs> All right, so so you won your five medals in Athens. Then you come back to the states. I think while the games were still going on, and I and mm -hmm. I caught your so so now life is a blur. Olympic champion. Everybody knows who Natalie Coglin is. Everybody knows your face. As you mentioned earlier, you were an introvert, didn't necessarily mm -hmm. seek out or want the attention, but now mm -hmm. the attention finds you anyway. So you're mm -hmm. doing the media circuit. You're on, well, I think, the Today Show. You're on the David Letterman Show. I actually Letterman, watched, yep. I watched Letterman. But, I found that last night and, and watched no, it. No way. And half of the interview, I think you were trying to educate him on, him on what the freestyle stroke was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember that interview, honestly. Um, I remember how cold he kept that studio. Like that that's one of the things that everyone says and that's a power play on his part. And it, it, it man, you're you're really <laughs> it's like forty degrees in there, like no exaggeration. Um that's actually why I left uh, Athens early was to do the Letterman show. Like mm. I was such a fan of his and um, nice. you know, I got the opportunity to come back and do that show and um yeah, that was really fun. But the, yeah, the, the late night circuit is something so foreign to a summer. And right. um, you, you treat those interviews like any other interview and you kind of forget that it's, you know, it's television. It's supposed to be comedy. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to, you know, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's different. And that's, that's something that comes with age. <laughs> All right. Just a, just a couple more questions. And Natalie, can't thank you for your time. Uh, so HBO is airing a show next week called mm -hmm. The Weight of Gold. And I've yeah. seen the trailer for it, and it basically features, you know, Lolo Jones, Michael Phelps, Sean White, uh, Bodie Miller, Gracie Gold, and others who really go very deep into the pressures of not only winning, but what happens after you win and, mm -hmm. and, and dealing with that mentally, because it can cause a lot of strain on anyone with those expectations. And Michael Phelps had a quote that he said, 80% or more, he thinks, um, come out with some type of, uh, some type of mental depression mm -hmm. after, after you leave the Olympics. A, how accurate do you think that is? And B, did you? Did you deal with any type of Olympic withdrawal when your career ended? Um, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, I, I would say that 80% may even be a little conservative a lot a lot of people get very depressed very depressed afterward and because again your life is so scheduled you have you're working towards one solitary single goal for year after year after year after year even if you achieve that afterwards a lot of people turn around and they're like now what the hell do i do um who am i <laughs> uh you know a lot of people have those um that identity crisis and lack of motivation um, and nothing kind of keeping them focused. Uh, and so I, uh, for the most part, was really fortunate in that I didn't experience that. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, I almost quit the sport as a teenager. I, I, I had, um, you know, kind of a different perspective of where swimming fit into my life. Um, and I always knew that it could be taken away at any moment. And so I was always focused on what to do next. Um, you know, uh, work on my cookbook, get my degree, 
plan, um, you know, uh, to go into business or whatever. Um, you know, I, I always made sure that there, there was going to be a future when swimming was over. And that being said, I missed it terribly. Like I, I loved, like I said, the daily struggle. I, I, I had my fill of that Olympic glory and that competition at the highest level, but I miss the camaraderie of a team and I miss um, the training and the day to day. Um, but it had to end at some point. <laughs> well, even to the point to where uh, uh, Caitlin called you last fall with with the mm-hmm. ISL squad. Caitlin I mean, Sandino, yeah, yep. yeah. She and 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 I. How surprised were you? That, that she thought of you as she's trying to build out this pro team for this brand new pro series, and she wanted you to be a part of it. No, it was so great. Caitlin and I were teammates on the 04 uh, Olympic Games, and um, you know she and I competed against one another quite a bit um, in college. And um, she called me up, and she was like, hey, you want to be part of ISL? I was like, you're insane. I just had a baby, and I haven't swum in years. No. <laughs> And um, then she's like, all you have to do is a 50 backstroke. And that was enough to just plant the seed in my head. I was like, you know what, that'd be really fun. Um, And it was a good motivation for me to get back into the pool and get back into swimming shape. And um, I swam like a pretty good, pretty good 50 back at the first meet. The second meet, the pressure was off me again. So I I did all right, but not great. Um, But it was so fun to see some of my very best friends. Maddie Kennedy is, is one of my very best friends. I got to hang out with her at the, the two competitions I competed in. Um, see Caitlin and yeah, kind of be part of that swimming world again. It was, it was bizarre at points, but at the same time, there was something that was so comfortable about it. And um, it was, it was really nice to be back for a couple, a couple meets and more than anything, I just wanted to support that new league because I think it's such a great opportunity for a lot of summers um, outside of the Olympic Games or outside of world, world championships. Um, and that desire within the public um, to watch swimming is actually there. Um, you know, it's, it's growing here in the U.S., but in Europe and in Asia, like people are really into it. Um, so uh, I, I hope once, you know, all the craziness of the pandemic slows down, I really hope that the ISL takes off. Yeah, and, and we all need rocks in our lives. And, and kind of the last topic I wanted to talk about was your family. We haven't talked about Ethan at all. And, uh, and your daughter. Oh, yeah, Annie. him. No. Uh, yeah, him. <laughs> kidding. Uh, I mean, people may not know, you know, how you met and when you met, but you are 37 now. Is that right, Nat? Correct. 37. And, and yep. so you've been with him over two decades Mm-hmm. Um, yep, I know it's insane. That's so that's so crazy, you know. Yeah. Um, how, how did you two meet? I know you were kind of on the same uh, club team, right? But uh, yep, we swam together. Yeah, yeah, we swam together in uh, in high school, and he is a couple years older than me. Um, he went to University of North Carolina Chapel yeah. Hill. Yeah. Um, his his first two years, um, and then decided he wanted to transfer, but didn't quite know where to transfer. Um, and so he came home to train for the 2000 Olympic trials. And, um, that's when we started dating. Um, and, uh, yeah, like we, he ended up going to UC Santa Barbara while I went to Cal, which is the best thing because we still got to be individuals outside of our relationship, um, in college, you know, um, we got to 
grow uh, separately <laughs> um, while still being, you know, together. And then, yeah, ended up getting married in 2009. Where can people go to find out information, Natalie, on, you know, Swimmers for Change and Gadarian Wines and your cookbook, Cook to Thrive? Where can they find info? Um, everything is available on my website, nataliecoglin.com. And if you're interested on um, any of our wines, just go to gadarianwines.com. But all that information is, is right there. And you can follow any of my endeavors on, uh, on those two platforms. Right. In the end, was it all worth it? Was it worth the five o'clock alarms going off and of the swimming for kidding? years? <laughs> I loved, I loved it. Even, even when it was hard and I was angry and I was tired and, and, and all those things, I still loved it and I still miss it. I, I am so grateful for my time as a professional athlete. Uh, it's, it's really, really special um, and something that I'll always look fondly upon. And I know Zenny's only a couple of years old. Do you have any idea if she would be interested in continuing the family legacy? <laughs> she's quite the swimmer. Uh, I will say, um, that's the one thing that we've been able to do with the shelter in place is my parents have a pool, my in-laws have a pool. And so we've been escaping in the afternoons to one of their pools to swim and she loves it. And if anything else, she's very strong and she's very, uh, physical. So I think she'll be an athlete. I don't know if she'll be a swimmer, but she'll probably be an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. My best to Ethan, my best to your daughter, Zenny. Hope to meet her very soon. And yes. uh, do we know, is it a boy or a girl coming in a couple it's months? It's a boy. It's a boy. Um, yeah, so in, in a few months, we'll have a little a little boy that uh, Zenny could beat up for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Coglin, I hope uh, next July we're sitting side by side in Tokyo at the uh, Summer Olympics. Thanks once again. Thanks, Patrick. All right. She is the legendary Natalie Coglin joining us on this week's Hanging with Champions. Again, you can find us on social media on Instagram at Hang With Champions, on Facebook, Hang With Champions, Twitter, Hang With Champs. And the podcast can be found on all the different outlets, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and soon to be on Pandora. Just click the search bar, hit Hang With Champions, and you'll hear this and all of our other podcasts with great Olympians and great champions across sports, business, politics, journalism, you name it, we are there. So for Natalie Coglin and everybody with us here at Hang With Champions, I'm Patrick Keenis. Thanks for hanging out with us on Hangwood Champ.